You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. 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 Join your hosts, Anne. And Kevin, that's me. The second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions. For the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone Everyone in in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. How are you, Anne? Hello, Kevin. I'm well. And um, hello to Larry and Larissa, who I know are joining us today. Larry and Larissa, <laughs> I've got two more listeners. We might have uh, Patricia and David listen to us this afternoon as well. I've been doing a bit of a job for them for the last couple of weeks. Oh, and, lovely. And told them to have a listen. So today's Friday the 10th of September. I always like to say what the date is at the beginning of the show, just so mm-hmm. I know what date is. <laughs> what year it is. What year it is. It's a bit hard to tell these days. Now, speaking of such things, like everybody's schedule's a bit disjointed these days mm-hmm. and um, uh, so I've been kind of wandering around doing a bit of this and a bit of that and I, I wandered out to have a cup of coffee the other day and I flicked on the telly to catch a bit of Barnaby Joyce speaking at the National Press Oops. Conference. <laughs> oh, it almost scared me out of the room uh, and I, I caught this just this one particular snippet and okay. um, it was one of those I need to uh, jump through the, the TV and try and uh, wrestle this thing to the ground. Um, Shall we have a listen to what he had to say? Because it it brings to a head so many things that we talk about so often. So I'm just going to play this little snippet. This is Barnaby Joyce last week at the National Press Press Club Mm -hmm. in Canberra. Have a listen to this. We've also got to go back to the pragmatics of of the Australian economy. As I said, we've got a major debt and we've got to pay for it. And we've got to provide to the world what the world wants uh, to get our terms of trade and get the money to keep this economy going. And if you want to know what the world wants, then the best place to determine that is to go to a port, to go to the port of Port Hedland. And it's quite obvious the world wants iron ore. But if you go to Hayes Point, you say the world wants coal. If you go to Gladstone, you say the world wants coal. If you go to Newcastle, you say the world wants coal. When the world decides to move on, then so do we. But if we turn that around and say, well, we're going to have to stop putting things on a boat, because we've made that decision, sort of arbitrary decision right now to do it, then if you're going to be authentic about that decision, you have to then turn around and say which hospital, because the money is not there, which hospital you intend to close, which pension do you intend not to raise, How you going to, that you don't think the NDIs should have the same uh, length and breadth that it has now, that you affect your defence force, that you don't have the money for education or the, or the money for, for um, doctors, for Medicare. You know, you've got to be, and if people say, oh, no, I don't want that either, then you say, you're being a child because you're saying our biggest export in this nation is fossil fuels. It's just that you don't see it from, inner, from the inner suburbs, but it's there. And if you say, I'm going to close down the biggest earner for my family, but I want to live with the same standard of living I do now, then just, that's just a childish decision. So if it's, this nation wants to 
deal with that. They said you have to substantiate, not just not just muse, not just hope for, but substantiate an alternate income source. And this nation hasn't done it, and there's no prospect in the near future that it's going to happen. If it does happen, it'll happen in parallel, and one will evolve and one won't. Now, so the answer is, if we had this discussion in the inner suburbs, I know I'll get one view. If I have it in Musselbrook, I'll get another view. If I had it in central Queensland, you'll get that, another view. If I had it in the middle of Melbourne, you'll go back to the former view. Discussions, are, discussions evolve and are affected by what people see out their window. So, so there we have it. Thank you, Kevin. That was such a treat. <laughs> a treat. Uh, and it raises, it raises so many issues. So what, what Barnaby is saying is explaining his understanding of how the economy works. And as mm -hmm. far as he's concerned, overseas governments buy our coal and that pays for our government spending. Mm-hmm. So, so, and somehow that's done in Australian dollars. So he's saying that currency creation uh, and government funding it, it comes from overseas governments buying our coal. And until somebody comes up with a better idea, uh, we're not going to be able to afford uh, hospitals and roadworks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Fascinating, huh? Yeah. You know, you know what I heard in all of that, Kevin. There was quite a few things. Um, you know, one of the things that fascinates me, and that was such a beautiful piece of oratory there because it's the perfect example of what propaganda sounds like, I think. And one of the ways, one of the ways propaganda sounds, and you hear it in Barnaby's t sort of tone of delivery there, is he sounds very reasonable and very adult and like he's being the responsible adult in the room and he's going to show us how to get through, through, through life, you know. And if we don't understand, we're the children. Exactly, exactly. So so that's the first thing about propaganda is that it often comes across sounding very reasonable because it wouldn't be very good propaganda if it sounded really wacky or strident or, you know, crazy. Yeah. So so that's one, one thing about how propaganda works. The other thing is that um, what I heard then in what Barnaby was saying is I feel like he just handed us this little package. <laughs> And I'm just imagining like this little package and it's about 10 centimetres across, right? And in that package, I heard at least three myths and there might be more. Um, and I apologise to anyone who's like studies real mythology like Greek and Roman gods. These are myths which, you know, there might be a little grain of truth to them, but the truth is actually quite distorted. So they're real misrepresentations of what's going on. So there's this package he's handed us and it's got three myths in it. But what he's also done <laughs> is I feel like he's gotten this masking tape, right? And he's gotten a whole reel of masking tape and he's wound it round and round and round and round around this package so that now instead of being 10 centimetres wide, it's like 15 centimetres wide. And this is binding up the package so you almost can't open it. And the binding that he's used is one that you mentioned. So there's two bindings that he's used. And one of them is the Tina. So he's, he's basically saying there is no alternative, <laughs> right. which is, of course, as we know from, you know, Margaret Thatcher's playbook. So it's been used for quite a while, that one. So what that happens is he's sending, he's giving us a message, these three myths. And at the same time, he's saying, you cannot question these myths because you may as well not even look anywhere else or think anything else because there just is no alternative. So it's very clever. In fact, I wish, you know, I think he's a really clever speaker and I really wish he was on our side, but he's, but if there's, there's nothing in what he 
you said that I could agree with. So. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> but I will take issue with the with your um, uh, thing on propaganda, though, because mm. I reckon he, he firmly believes this. I, I reckon this is the orthodox understanding uh, that a lot of politicians have, that everything needs to be paid for mm. by taxes coming in. Um, mm. And and they say this with a straight face, and they say this after they've just created three hundred billion dollars worth of new income through through the COVID uh, uh, pandemic, and they're repaying it through quantitative easing. So you, you've got the 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 government, which is the currency issuer, creating currency on demand without collecting tax, without selling bonds. Mm. It, it does all this afterwards, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and it says, oh, we. We can do it. We've just done this. We've just mm. created three hundred billion dollars worth of, of currency, but we can't do this unless we sell coal. Yeah, but they just did. Yeah. So that's one of the myths, Kevin. I want to come back to that, but yeah. I want to do my binding. Okay. <laughs> okay. Radio. So he's wrapping this myth up first in the Tina, which says, "Don't even bother thinking." Well, that, that's very helpful. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, and guess what? He's quite successful in that because not a lot of people do think about this stuff. I just go, "I can write about it." Whatever you say. Exactly. And the other myth was the one that you pointed out, which he said. If you do happen to question what I'm saying, then you're being childish, childish. right? Mm. So that's the shaming tactic. And that's a tactic that I think has is worked so well that it's kind of distorted political discourse for quite a few decades now. Because if you think about it, the Liberal Party have been shaming the Labor Party since the Whitlam era about being irresponsible, bad economic managers, um, and even to the point of being childish. And they'll say the same thing about the Greens Party, like they'll say that they're wacky, they're whatever. So that's the double binding. So so what that does is that you can't even say out loud that you're thinking about an alternative without being accused of being childish. And it works. It works to shut people down because we know, we know that the Greens know their MMT. We know probably the Greens leadership and most of the politicians in the Greens party, they know and probably agree with MMT. We know that there's quite a few people in the Labor Party that understand their MMT or their modern monetary theory, which is our understanding of the economy. Let's not even call it MMT. They they understand how currency is created. They they understand the relationship between taxation and government spending. Right. They understand that in World War II, the government was was able to create currency to sustain Mm -hmm. a a, a war. But Uh, they can't say it out loud because they'll be shamed by being called childish and irresponsible and so on. So these bindings are very powerful and they work really well until you get your MMT or your economic scissors out and cut through them, right? Until you understand it. <laughs> Do you know what it's, a bit like? it's, it's like, the, you know, the, the Japanese um, are, are whaling down in the Antarctic mm-hmm. and they're saying it's their traditional way of life. It's only been traditional for about fifty years, and, 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 they, and they state it like, "Oh, but there's no, there's no other way." We they're have to, Tina. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and this is what they're doing. They're saying, "Oh, well, this is how we've always run the economy since about the, the mid nineteen seventies, and, and then particularly since John Howard twenty years ago. That's how we've always done things. Exactly. As if, as if there's no other way to think about anything. Exactly. So it shuts down the argument. And so the three myths, the, the one that you've mentioned, which we can talk a bit more about, is this idea that the Australian federal government has this debt that needs to be paid back. That's the first myth. The second myth is that we're just giving people what they want. So the people overseas want coal, we're just giving them what they want, and we can unpack that a bit more. And then the third myth, and I don't know if you notice this, is he's... Um, He's posing the inner suburbs against the rural people. So he's saying there's a country-town divide here, and he's playing off that as yep. well. So there's so let's unpack those. So we've sort of done the debt one. Now, the, now you would think, 
Kevin. Can we just? Yeah. I, I'd just like to speak about the debt because yeah. he goes. What he says is, uh, unless somebody can come up with an alternative for me, well, this is what we're stuck with. Mm. Barnaby, we're right here. We've got a, a very viable alternative. <laughs> All you have to do is what you've already just done with the COVID thing: is just create the currency on demand where it's needed. It's not complicated. <laughs> we, we've we've gotten out of bigger pickles before by using exactly this same strategy. We did it during World War Two. We had a big deficit. And, and so this whole thing about um, we, can, we might be tricking onto another point is mm. what happens if we don't pay back the deficit? As mm. we've explained on many times in the show, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's, it's a bit of an anticlimax. Uh, yeah. You know, funny, you know, um, the way that Barnaby is talking. Now, now, he is our Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, and I think he's probably smarter than Scott Morrison. Right. And so he has actually hung out in uh, Parliament there for many decades. He's been pretty close to, like, looking at how you run a country. So isn't it amazing that the person who's second in charge of the country is sort of saying that he doesn't know where money comes from? He's economically illiterate. <laughs> you know, I was thinking that's pretty much the same as, like, if you had a farmer who didn't know where baby cows come from, and he's going, oh, I think they might come from under cabbage leaves or something. <laughs> I mean, just quite simply, if he, if he thinks that India or China is going to fund our government spending by buying coal, where did they get the money from? Like, mm. like who creates Australian dollars? I'm pretty sure that there's a different currency over in China and India, and they don't, they don't create Australian dollars. So what oh. they're saying is they need money from overseas countries who don't create our currency to supply our currency's needs. Yeah, I think it's very childish, Barnaby, to think <laughs> that money comes from India or it comes out of gas wells or maybe he thinks baby cows come out of gas wells. <laughs> he's, he's in Canberra. Maybe you should wander over to the to the Australian Office of Financial Management or over to the Reserve Bank of Australia who are currently buying bonds, oh. hundreds of billions of dollars. I think they're buying $5 billion worth of bonds a week at the moment hmm. um, uh, to buy their own debt. Uh, and he'll, he might learn something might about learn something. where Australian dollars come from. Well, look, in case you can't make it over to the Australian Office of Financial Management, let us I'll try and put it as simply as I can for Barnaby to understand where money comes from. And so what happens is that in the Australian federal government always creates new money when it spends. So at the same time that it spends, it's creating new money. And the way that happens is that the parliament makes a spending decision. So they might say, for example, oh, we've got these lockdowns in 2020. We better put $1,000 in all the people's bank accounts who aren't able to work. And so that instruction goes to the central bank and they essentially type numbers into people's bank accounts. And that's what you call... Uh, and essentially all of that typing that they're doing when they're creating new money, that's what you call an accounting operation. So Barnaby, the Australian Federal Government, creates money as an accounting operation. It doesn't create money by selling stuff to anyone overseas. It doesn't need money from taxes. It doesn't need to borrow money from everyone, anyone. The Australian Federal B Government creates the money when it spends. <laughs> Do you think he got it? <laughs> well, he should because he's an accountant and you're saying this is an accountancy op operation. And so, mm. but uh, no, it is amazing how many accountants actually haven't mm. got uh, much of a clue about this stuff. And the accounting well. is really important because basically what you're doing is you're keeping score of who's got points in this game that we call the economy. So if you've got $100 in your pocket, essentially what that $100 is saying, our economy owes you at some point in the future $100 worth of stuff. 
So it's really important to keep track of who's got how many points. So the monetary system just runs like an accounting system. And the issue is, is what what are you doing about the stuff? So when you spend money, essentially what you're doing is you're making a choice. So for example, if you're instructing the central bank to type $50 million into the bank accounts of gas companies so they can start fracking in the Beetaloo Basin, what you're saying is that's how we want to spend our resources is pulling gas out of the ground. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing, the other two myths that we'll just, we might just finish up with Barnaby here, shall we? Sure. Keep yeah. going on Barnaby. Sorry, Barnaby. Um, you know, we we'd, don't... We'd, I'd invite Barnaby to come and have a chat with us any time. Uh, like, uh, Absolutely. We'd, we'd, and if anybody um, understands Barnaby's logic and they'd like to explain it to us, I'd, I'd love to speak to them as well. Not as a put down. I'm genuinely interested in anybody that might be able to give us an insight as to why, how what we're saying might be incorrect because... Um, yeah, we've cross-checked this a few times. And <laughs> it's, it's just a question of following the money, where it comes from, where it goes, uh, and and what the score sheet is. And, uh -huh. and uh, it, it, it's not that complicated. But, no, but, it's pretty simple. But maybe we've missed something. I don't know. Maybe Barnaby could enlighten us. <laughs> well, he was sitting in the same room as Luke McGregor that time at the Q and A um, ABC show panel show. There, he shut him down too. Yeah. Um, I don't think he was listening to Luke, who was no. trying to explain it. So the other thing he says is that we're just giving people what they want. Um, so he says, you know, exporting gas and coal, we're just giving the uh, overseas countries what, what they want. And that is, I, th I, I think of that as the drug pushers rationalisation. Yes, of course. <laughs> Listen, they, they want this stuff and, you know, I know it pollutes the world and we've got global warming, but what else can we do? You know, like, like what, what <laughs> so options have we got? Well, well you could stop selling it. That would be good. You yeah. Know? And, you know, you hear that um, excuse, we're just giving the public or we're just giving the consumers what they want. You hear that, I reckon, in a lot of industries that uh, thrive on addictive consumer goods or at least uh, selling things that might not be in humanity's interest. Because, you know, you hear that um with the media, like when there's more violence or whatever in the media, you hear them say, oh, we're just giving the public what they want to watch. And you might not even be thinking about, well, you're not offering them any interesting alternatives or, you know, you've sewn up the airwaves or whatever. And you hear that also um, uh, from companies that uh, supply gambling products. You know, oh, yeah. we're just giving the public what they want. They, they need to gamble, you know. Yeah, no, it's always explained in, in some way. I've never understood, but people seem to accept it. It's, um, it's a strange thing. Yeah, yeah. So I think if they just wanted opium, do you think we should be growing opium? Well, by their logic, of course, they should be, you know. And uh, uh, the whole Afghanistan uh, war in Af Afghanistan was um, quite interested. I'd be interested to see the influence of the... Um, of the poppy fields that they were wading through there on the war effort on one side or the other, or maybe both, who yeah. knows? I'm not, you know, I don't, honestly don't know. But. Oh, well, Afghans just giving the public what they want. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the other interesting little myth that he manages to put in this little package that he tightly wound up in all of his Tina and his childish shaming was this uh, so-called divide between the country and the city. And he's talking about inner North Melbourne. So I think he's having a bit of a, a go at Adam Bant there, who is the right. member of the Greens Party. And, um, you know, I was thinking too there about how... Actually, I was listening to a podcast. Um, I've been getting a lot of my info lately with podcasts, yes. sitting at home in lockdown. And the Australia Institute produces a podcast called Follow the Money, and the Australia Institute is an economic progressive think tank, and 
Uh, they haven't quite gotten to MMT yet, but they we'd probably agree with them like 90%, I'd say, in what they put out. And so this is a podcast hosted by Ebony Bennett, and uh, they were talking about uh, their research into the whole gassing, um, the fracking of gas in the Northern Territory. And the fellow on their podcast was saying how he actually went to the Northern Territory and everywhere he went, town, country, small communities, you know, city, country, whatever it was, everywhere he went, all the people in the Northern Territory understand how valuable their water supply is. And they all understand that the last thing you want to do is go fracking near your water supply. <laughs> and so there was no divide, Barnaby, between town and country. They were all pretty unanimous in the Northern Territory that they do not want to see gas being extracted. <laughs> I, think, I think Barnaby's definition of country has shifted somewhat. It's, it's shifted from, uh, from farmers who are in the country to coal mines, which are often in the country as well. And he's just only speaking to one group and not the other. Oh, I think so. And that's uh, an interesting representation. Um, shall we have a, a little break and come back to uh, some stuff we've been uh, interviewing Victor Klein from the New Liberals? Um, yes, and we've got the New Liberals to talk to. So we can have a bit of a, a chat about them. If we're talking about political alternatives, if you if you don't think Barnaby is up to the uh, up to the job, uh, there are other people that might be worth voting for. So we'll come back to that um, to that shortly. You peer through my window, you shine on me like a halo. You meant for me, I can say so. Too soon to call, I can tell though. You've been here for light years, you calm my nerves and dramatis. You radiate over my skin, my cocoa brown, my melanin.
So before Jed endorsing our show, we had uh, Kai singing a song called Gold with a little help from Sampa the Great. And I've chosen that song because uh, there's a festival coming up probably early next year, Lockout Music Festival, featuring a lot of uh, just local artists, and Kai is one of them. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it because it's been so long since I've been to a festival. <laughs> <laughs> Sensational. Yeah, Great. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just I'm just pushing it because it's all local artists and it's mm. small uh, and uh, uh, it, it should be um, uh, well worth uh, well worth heading along to that. Um, now, we – well, you – A few in, weeks ago now. Yeah, <laughs> a few weeks ago now, you introduced uh, a fellow, Victor Klein. Victor uh, Klein. I got to have a chat with Victor, who is the party leader for a a little micro party that's up and coming. We think at the moment it's called the New Liberals, but that's under question at the moment, the I think naming. That, I think that's changed, didn't they? Mm. It might have got knocked on the head through the courts, and we can have a talk about that. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan Momsen, who is one of their candidates as well. Um, and so, yeah, we just had a chat with them because they actually do explicitly say that they're following uh, the modern monetary theory form of economics to uh, for their policies. Very, very good progressive policy. Let's um, let's. Uh, I've, I've broken the interview up into segments so that we can uh, uh, just flick through it. But let's um, start with uh, uh, with Victor and Jonathan introducing themselves. Joining me today are two of the, not just members, but candidates of a new minority party that has popped up in Australia, and the name of that party is the New Liberals. I'm speaking with Victor Klein, who is the party leader and the Senate candidate for New South Wales. So welcome, Victor. Thank you very much. And also Jonathan Momsen, who is a Senate candidate for Victoria here. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks, Anne. As we were teeing up this interview, you were both obliging enough to go and do a little online test called the Political Compass, and you can find it at politicalcompass.org. And it, it gives you a series of statements, and you read those, and then you just say whether or not you agree with them. And at the end of answering a bunch of those, you find out where you sit in its political spectrum. Now, this spectrum actually has two dimensions to it. So left to right, you've got the economic approach, which is going from either a very collective communist approach over to the free market neoliberal approach. And then on the up-down axis, you've got what they're calling more of an authoritarian decision-making approach or how much of the individual liberty you like to see. I think I had you guys do that because I had a bit of trepidation around the name of the party and I was wondering how much we would have in common. <laughs> and lo and behold, we all fell into the same quadrant. I think we weren't just in the same quadrant. We were just about on the same dot, weren't we? We were pretty much nudging each other. Yeah, but there was something that worried me about the terminology they used. It was the, well, they used the word libertarian, I think, to describe the more liberal approach. Yes, for libertarian is someone who believes in the freedom of the individual irrespective of what the exercise of that freedom produces. So 
that's where you get a lot of that Trumpian stuff where they talk about, you know, I have a right to bear arms and walk down the street shooting them, shooting people if I want. Mm-hmm. Whereas a liberal, uh, which we are, a true liberal, is, is someone who says, yes, we believe in the freedom of the individual, but a very strong place for government to ensure that in exercising that freedom, the individual doesn't impinge on the freedom of others. So the classic example would be a multinational wants to come and trade in this country, and we say you're free to trade in this country. But if you pay no tax, a proper Liberal Party would intervene at that point because you're securing the freedom of others by limiting the freedom, the so-called freedom, of that corporation. Well, that, I guess, is a core philosophical point when you come to politics, isn't it? Balancing the freedom of individuals to do things and the freedom of everybody else. And I think that's one of the core things that the Liberal Party concerns themselves with. I think a Conservative Party, particularly this Conservative Party that runs this country, I don't think they concern themselves with that at all. Um, If it suits their donors and if it suits themselves and if it suits the top 1% to proceed in a certain way, then everybody else can go jump. Uh, And that's one of the great objections that we have to the way we're being governed at the moment. So is there more to the name of the party in a marketing sense than just the philosophy? Ex post facto there is, um, but it didn't. we didn't set out to do that. I mean, we formed the party because, like many other people in this country, we felt there was no one to vote for. Mm-hmm. There was no one we could trust. There was no one that was looking after the goodwill of the people in this country in general. So we formed this party and we said that we wanted to distinguish ourselves from the people that we didn't like so much that were running the country. And the number one thing was tell the, tell the truth, you know, tell the truth and answer direct questions, I suppose, were the two main things we were concerned about. We confronted what that meant um, almost on day one because we had to name the party. And we all knew that we were a Liberal Party, as that word is understood and has been around the world for 200 years. To mean a party that believes in, in freedom of the individual, but justice and compassion and equality of opportunity, most of all, I suppose, And we knew that's what we were about. Mm -hmm. We knew that if we called ourselves the New Liberals, we would be buying into a world of trouble Mm -hmm. because the Liberal Party of Australia has taken a perfectly good word and perverted it to mean its exact opposite of ultra-conservative. But we said to ourselves, we promised we'll tell the truth and if we we lie for convenience by calling ourselves something that we aren't right from the beginning, then where do we go from there? So we called ourselves... A Liberal Party because we wanted to tell the truth, uh, whatever the consequences would be. The consequences have turned out to be quite strange. And this is where ex post facto, um, there's a tactic. Not that we intended to have the tactic, but a tactic has emerged. And that I suppose people more to the left of centre uh, see the word Liberal and they immediately think of the Liberal Party of Australia and they shy away. That was my reaction. <laughs> yeah, and we all come from left of centre backgrounds. You know, we're all ex-Labor voters, Greens voters, that sort of thing. So most of our personal friends started off shying away. But what we discovered was that people to the centre and the right of centre, they have no problem with the word Liberal. They just have a problem with what the Liberal Party of Australia has done to it. Mm. And they feel that their party has been stolen and they are looking for a real Liberal Party to replace it. So we found that getting them on board was perhaps easier than it even should be. You know, they were jumping on board like like flies. So uh, what our sophologists advised us 
they assess that there's as many as uh, 4 million moderate disaffected liberal voters in the country who detest the Liberal Party but, but vote for it through clenched teeth because they're generationally incapable of voting uh, for a Labor Party or a Greens Party, but a real Liberal Party comes along. They'll jump on, you know, to put one in the box um, next to us. And so what we're doing tactically is we're only running in about three dozen Liberal-held seats because that's where we'll have the best chance of taking the seat. And at the same time, we don't get in the way of the Labor Party. We're not huge fans of the Labor Party, but we've got to say that the principal purpose is to get rid of this government as we see it. And if we can assist them by not cutting across their, their ground, then we'll do that. And I think the upshot may be if everything works the way it should. I mean, theoretically, we could take every one of those three dozen seats and that depends on how well we get known and how much people like us and so on. But I think logically we could, we could certainly take two or three or four. And if we do that, and we leave the Labor Party alone in their seats, then what you'll find is a minority uh, Labor government with us holding the balance of power. So that's the, that's the tactic that emerged, but ex post facto out of telling the truth. So it's an interesting thing, this uh, this new Liberal Party, uh, mm -hmm. Anne. Um, and uh, so I, I got out my Chambers Compact Dictionary, which, <laughs> which actually sits underneath my uh, laptop because I always need to look up uh, the meanings of words. And I looked up Liberal, and uh -huh. it says uh, it's got a few definitions. The first one was giving generously, freely or abundantly. Well, they do that sometimes, but it depends who you are. Like if you've you already, <laughs> you already got enough, they'll, they'll take you generously, freely or abundantly. If you haven't, they don't. Okay. The one that, I, um, uh, that got me here was uh, the next definition is uh, liberal. Tolerant of different opinions, open-minded. Mm. Well. Mm. <laughs> okay. Um, so the next one is uh, liberal. In favour of social and political reform, reform progressive. Bum, bum. Wow. <laughs> I don't hit that one. Um, and uh, the last one I've got here is uh, of education aiming to develop general cultural interests and to broaden the mind. <laughs> okay. So that's that's the, like some, some general definitions of liberal. Right. Then I had a look at conservative. Uh, conservative says favouring that which is established or traditional with opposition to change. Now, the Liberal Party... Mm. Who do you think they, which definition do you think suits them best? Well, you know, I think they're sneakily doing quite a rat, lot of radical changes, um, but not of the progressive sort. So I don't think they fit either definition. Yeah, well, well, they are, they don't want to change, they, so they certainly don't want to change economics. They, they, they continuously um, uh, hinder any uh, progressive social reform by saying we can't afford it. Mm -hmm. um, just like Barnaby Joyce saying, the beginning, ah, we can't afford it, we've got to sell coal. It's nonsense. We can always afford it. The, the, uh, the, the problem is inflation, not, not the debt. We, we've spoken about that many, many times. Uh, the focus is on making sure that your economy works, that the right things are being done, mm -hmm. and they don't want to change a thing. This is a conservative party. Uh, it, what was interesting was that um, the Liberal Party challenged the new Liberals um, in the courts about their name, saying that they couldn't use the word liberal. Uh, and I think eventually they've been successful. Um, mm. At first they weren't. Um, the, the, the new Liberal Party then challenged the Liberal Party, saying that they were 
uh, abusing the word uh, liberal in their name, that they weren't a liberal <laughs> They were party. misleading the Australian public, yeah, yes. Yeah, they were, they were uh, false advertising. Um, uh, of course, it would be a uh, uh, interesting sort of scenario if that came up, but I, I don't, think, don't think it did. Anyway, I think they've failed um, in their attempt to keep the, the word liberal in their party, and, the, and they're contemplating changing it to something now, which is a real pity, because they would have picked up that, um, that vote, the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the odd vote here and there. Yeah. Um, Shall we have a listen to a bit more of what they've got let's to say? Let's have a bit more of a listen. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, well, let's 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 see what the Liberal Party thinks about that. Hang on, two seconds. I'm just wondering how the Liberal Party, as it's known, is reacting to you and your name. Well, they challenged our right to have the name. Oh, did they? Yes. When we went to register our party, they lodged an objection with um, the AEC, the Australian Electoral Commission saying that we can't have the word liberal in our name because it will be confused with them. Now, they lost that. They lost that challenge. And they lost it as they should have lost it because the law was very strongly on our, our side. Mm -hmm. Several federal court judges have said that uh, a generic political word like liberal cannot be proprietised. The Liberal Party of Australia can't. I think they use the term box that up and make it their own property. And in fact, they, you know, there have been decisions already. The Liberals for Forests was successfully registered. The Liberal Democrats was successfully registered. But they're challenging us because they see us as a true political threat. Mm. Uh, so we've won that one. Uh, and we're, now we've lodged a counterclaim. Uh, there's a provision in the Electoral Act that says that if you obtain your ongoing registration as a party by fraud or misrepresentation, you can be deregistered. So we brought an action to have them deregistered <laughs> because we say that calling themselves a Liberal Party is absurd. I mean, they're so conservative that even Boris Johnson had to kick them out of the, the talks they were having <laughs> over there last time. Um, their application to join the International Federation of International Liberal Parties has been rejected, but they're, they're a member of the equivalent Conservative group. So what they're doing is they're misrepresenting who they are. Well, that sounds like a bit of um, court jujitsu you're using there. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, absolutely. Um, we've actually got the law on our side there too. Whether any administrator or judge would have the courage to deregister the government party, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, but we're taking it to them, I suppose, is, is the point, yeah. Unfortunately, since that interview, and I think the um, courts have reversed that decision, and, and uh, as, we, as we said, have have banned the new liberals from using the word. Yeah, liberal. there was quite a lot of um, things happening since we had that chat. So on the twenty sixth of August, only a few weeks ago, they actually passed Liberal and Labor. Kevin got together on this one, and they passed a thing called the Party Registration Integrity Bill. <laughs> And that did a couple of things. And one of the things it did was say that minor parties needed to have a membership of 1,500 in order to be registered. And that went up from 500. So they tripled the number of members that you needed to get to have a party. Um, I think the interesting thing was with that was that um, uh, that word got out about that and the new Liberal membership actually tripled overnight because people <laughs> jumped on board in protest and so they actually uh, inadvertently um, uh, tripled their base uh, in so doing, which it, was good. It kind of backfired, yeah. didn't it? It's really interesting though. I tell you what, if, if you're like a little mosquito and you bite the bear, the bear is going to swat you as much as it can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
you know, I was um, another podcast I was listening to, which is called Accidental Gods, which I quite like. It comes out of Scotland and it's hosted by Amanda Scott. And on one of her shows, she had a former political strategist to Tony Blair, a fellow named Matthew Taylor. And he was talking about how there's been these studies done where they'll um, survey politicians and they've said to them, if you could make a law that will increase the likelihood that your party will win or it's a law that would strengthen democracy, which way would you go? And almost to a, to the, to a man, <laughs> they all say we would we would vote to have a law that would strengthen that would increase the likelihood that we would win. So so there's this whole understanding out there that one of the problems with electoral politics or or the way that um, you know really the way the West has developed this way of how people make decisions how do how do we get the people into the room that make the decisions on the behalf of the rest of us and one of the ways we do that is through a competition that's known as an election and so now we're understanding that this competitive process of elections is a place where parties will do anything to win. It, it all becomes about winning the election and not what's best for democracy. Democracy comes off second to the competition. So that's, um, exactly. That, and that's reinforced time and time again. There's, look, there's a, a lot of interesting discussions about uh, alternatives to the way that we do things. The, the one um, that you and I have talked about before is kind of like the jury duty system where uh, – where mm. you just get nominated to mm. be a politician. Random selection. You, you pull out of your house and say, "Rightio, you're it for four years. Go and be a, po a politician." Uh, and there've there've been some studies on that. It's actually been quite uh, quite fruitful because people aren't into that competitive mo mode and they just want best mm. outcomes and mm. then they want to get the hell out of there. Yeah, so it sounds quite chaotic, but actually they do say that it produces decisions that are a lot more thoughtful and a lot more aimed at the long term rather than these sh short-sighted, how do we win the next election? It's a sad reflection on our politicians that uh, somebody picked at random is going to do a far better <laughs> job than, than a career politician. True. I think it's more about the system, though, than the individuals because as an individual, you just have to behave in that way, I think. Yeah. You know, if that's the choice that you're faced with. So it's interesting because what this fellow said on this podcast sort of backed up what Cameron Murray was saying on an early episode of this show. That um, and th and now what this example of this new law that was provoked by the new Liberal Party. It's all about how do you win. It's not about what's best for democracy. Indeed, it's not. Look, let's just take a quick break and then we'll come back to some more of uh, the interview with Victor Klein. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio.
Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. So before that announcement, we heard from uh, Dorsal Fins with a song called Roll Back the Years. They'll be playing at Lockhart Music Festival, which we think it was going to be in November. It looks like it might be um, put pushed back till January. I think I'm not quite sure. I might be jumping the gun on that one. But uh, we've been uh, talking with Victor Klein from the New Liberals um, about uh, some of their policies, etc. Let's hear what he has to say about um, uh, conventional trickle-down economics. Well, let's look at some of those policies that are coming up with your platform for the New Liberals. Uh, Jonathan, one of the things that stood out to me in your candidate statement was where you said, the New Liberals and I are here to deconstruct the trickle-down myth. <laughs> so can you briefly tell me what that myth is and, and what that deconstruction process is going to be? Well, I mean, it, it deconstructs itself because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it, it's this idea that if we are giving money to the, the wealthy to corporations to big business that that will benefit those who are less well off. Trickle-down economic theory suggests that, oh, you know, they'll employ more people or they'll uh, pay more taxes because they'll be making more money. And for five or so decades that it's been tried all around the world, it's never worked. It never happens. You just give the money to the uh, top of the tree and it stays there. It's only been shown to work the other way. You know, you look at things like the COVID supplement payment and the ability to stimulate the economy there. That's um, that's the way it works because if you give $1,000 to a millionaire, well, then they've got a million and $1,000. Mm-hmm. If you give $1,000 to a person that has no dollars, then all of a sudden they've got some money to spend and that benefits the economy. That's going back to a bit of the old Keynesian understanding of what prompts um, aggregate demand, as we talk about on this show here. 
I mean, I'm, I'm an old Keynesian. I mean, Menzies, Menzies presided over our most prosperous period and he ran responsible deficits. I remember when Abbott was bleating about you know, the deficit he had to get down. I think um, Stephen Hales pointed out that Menzies constantly ran deficits eight to nine times as high as that, and he created real full employment with that. Uh, he didn't have uh, any significant inflation and that's just old Keynesianism, and we would do the same. And we're not economists, but it just makes common sense to us. So if we want to create, and we've said we create, for example, the best public school system in the world, then every dollar we spend building buildings, employing people, getting proper, you know, sporting equipment, sporting trainers, whatever, the million things that you can, you can invest in as a sovereign government, Every one of those dollars is spent and respent across the economy, stimulating big business and small business alike. Um, I also like that in the economic policies of the new liberals that you mentioned this idea that a budget surplus should be the aim of all governments at all times is you actually go and call it a lie. That's very strong language. <laughs> Having to run a surplus is, is like saying we need to squirrel away our nuts so that nobody can eat them, you know, and that's a good thing. I think it was Bill Mitchell who said, you run a surplus, you're going to get a deficit anyway, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you're going to have a recession uh, to accompany it along the way. So it is a lie that, that, that Milton Friedman, monetarism, Thatcherism, Reaganism, whatever you want to call it, was a big fat lie designed to drive all the income and wealth to the top 1% and it has been spectacularly successful. But it's time that the lie got unmasked. I can't wait to hear from you in the election debates when either Labor or Liberal are saying, well, we'll get the budget back in the black and you guys can pop up and say, well, actually, it's just a number. <laughs> it really has no meaning. Well, I mean, we're not a business. We're a country. <laughs> uh, and so the need to turn a profit isn't there. Mm -hmm. There are times where you might end up with a surplus, but to have it as a, a policy or a position that you're going to strive for this surplus, uh, it, it, it belies the role of government to take care of its citizens. Um, at the end of the day, a surplus or a deficit isn't really a policy. It's just the sum of your policies in, in a dollar form. And if you're running a, a deficit or a surplus, that's not going to be a reliable indicator of how well you're doing as a government. The reliable indicators are how well are people doing? You know, are people able to find work? Mm -hmm. Are people having good health outcomes? Exactly. And it's what you do with it that counts. Could I ask Jonathan, um, amongst the New Liberals' policies, what would be one of your favourites? I think when combined, the, the job guarantee and the doubling of social safety nets, it's going to do so much for so many people where Plenty of people have been losing their jobs. You know, one of the first economic shocks that a lot of um, you know, people my age have been through. Mm. And you look at what you're then subjected to and it's punitive and it's demoralising and it doesn't help people get back into work when they're on job seeker because they have to meet all these random demands and things like work for the dole exist. And that's a deliberate policy choice. Mm-hmm we would choose to ensure that anyone on a safety net payment would be receiving a, a deliverable income. And we also would have the job guarantee scheme there so that if you want work, you can work. You say, you know, we're going to you know, end unemployment. We're going to 
and poverty. You know, it's it's those two things that are really going to do a lot of heavy hitting. Those are the two things that really stood out to me initially and sort of showed this party's intent. Well, I have to say you've picked my favourite one, which is the job guarantee, because I do think it's a game changer. It will have so many repercussions right through the economy. And so on this show, we do often contrast the job guarantee, which of course is an unconditional offer of work to anyone who wants it at a socially inclusive wage. Um, We contrast that with the current system where to get, for example, the unemployment benefits or the DSP or the parenting payments, they actually put you through a brutal and humiliating grinder. (laughs) As you said, you do say in your policies that All Social Security recipients, irrespective of type, will receive roughly double what they are now receiving. So that was effectively what happened uh, during the lockdown. They doubled the unemployment rate. Of course, they ratcheted it back again because they don't want to be kind to the unemployed. And one of the debates that goes on in the MMT circles is whether or not you would have an unemployment benefit sit alongside a job guarantee. And I don't know if you've come across this debate at all. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of nodding of heads here. Um, We were saying off air that uh, I've never had a disagreement with one thing with Bill Mitchell, but actually there is one, and this this is it. Because Bill's view, and he stated it quite strongly, is that if you put up a non-compulsory job guarantee scheme and people choose not to take it up, especially in the sort of JGS that we're talking about, where there will be a Herculean attempt not to force people into jobs that they're not suited to, but get them into jobs that they suit or that they aspire to or that they like. And if we can't find any of those, we'll train them and we'll pay them while we're training. So Bill's view is that if you don't want to take that up and you want to sit on the couch, you shouldn't get anything. And we take the view that that's too harsh. Hmm. Uh, And I guess this is not really an economic question at all. It's a social question. We take the view that uh, we don't want to see you starve and we don't want to be responsible for that when we can make sure that it doesn't happen. Um, And that if we pay you a certain amount of money, it'll be a lot less than the person that gets the job through the job guarantee scheme. That stops you starving and it also gives you money to spend uh, that stimulates the economy. So we wouldn't do that, mm-hmm. part of our job guarantee will be the ability for people to demonstrate that what they already do is a real job. And a classic example is if you are a struggling artist and you're not earning much or anything, we would say that you're entitled, you're doing real work, you're creating art for the edification of this country and we would pay you the job guarantee scheme wage to continue doing what you're doing. Similarly, people who are full-time carers Instead of making them welfare recipients, we say you've got a real job, we're going to pay you that real amount. So for people to say, oh, you know, I'm being forced into something that I don't want to do because I'm an artist and I'm creative, we say, well, be an artist and be creative, you know. Right. So at the end of the day, we defend that only because that is our social preference. 
That explains why I think the job guarantee wage, which was over 50000 is probably one of the most generous ones I've seen. And that explains that you're trying to incentivise that compared to an unemployment benefit. I think one of the, one of the, the terrible tools of neoclassical propaganda, neoclassical economic propaganda, is that there's a whole world of bludgers out there who don't want to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and why, why are there bludgers there now when there weren't bludgers in the 50s and 60s? You know, it doesn't make any sense. And so <laughs> we don't buy that. I mean, I, I know bludgers, so they exist, sure. But I would, I would suggest that they would be a very, very small percentage. I think of those 3 million people living below the poverty line on uh, no wages or ridiculously minor wages or working four jobs to barely scratch by. I, I would guess that 98% of those would say, yeah, give me a job, Yes, you know. The other 2%, you know. I've been around unemployed activists long enough to have seen that most of them work very hard and that the percent of bludgers in that cohort of population is no greater than the percent of bludgers who might be in your trust fund baby <laughs> cohort. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'm just wondering when we'll next have the opportunity to vote for a new Liberal do you suppose? <laughs> mm. What do you reckon, Jono? Ask Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's only one person who knows, um, but the opportunity is coming. It's one that I think a lot of people are going to take up. Personally, we're hoping it might be later rather than sooner, uh, simply because we are a new party and we want to get those resources together, and the more time we have to do that, the better. But I'm also chomping at the bit to see the new Liberals on the ballot. Mm-hmm. We don't endorse parties on this show. We're very, very impartial, although we're totally biased towards MMT. (laughs) But we do wish you all the best with all your endeavours in the uh, electoral politics space. Wonderful. Thank you, Anne. Thanks so much, Anne. Thanks for your time. Thanks, guys, for coming on the show. 3CR So nice to hear a political party um, backing up what we're saying because sometimes you sit here and and rave on and you think, (laughs) are we we actually mad and and is anybody else thinking like us? But there are. There there are other people out there who... And acting on it. And acting on it, Mm. which is really nice to see. It's a a slow, slow change. Um, uh, And I particularly like... Uh, like it when he starts talking about um, surpluses and deficits and what what that actually what they really mean what that means what yeah that, what the that point that uh, Jonathan was making there was that you can tell if uh, there's some bad economic management going on because they will target they will either say we're going to make a surplus or they will target a deficit and what we all say out of modern monetary theory is you don't target a deficit or surplus surplus you do whatever spending is necessary and then at the end of that you'll figure out whether you've got a surplus or a deficit yeah well they used to push deficits back in the uh, in the menzies era he, he got into trouble for uh, not spending enough uh, mm. because people understood that the government needed to spend into the economy to keep the economy and, and uh, for the welfare of their citizens and so uh, if the government wasn't spending they used to get in trouble it's mm. completely reversed now um, uh, and I think it's important to remember that if you run a government surplus you're running a private sector deficit a government mm-hmm. surplus means you're that the government is taxing more mm. out of the private sector than what it's putting it into putting into the private sucking sector. money out of the economy so, so it's shrinking <laughs> the private sector so this idea that a, that a, a government surplus is a good thing mm-hmm. is crazy it's, and that's the point that jonathan made as well which is often a surplus will be followed by a recession and that's because you've taken money out of the private sector and now you've um stopped you've actually tightened the economy so there are less jobs 
And so that people end up having to go on to um, employment benefits. In that case, you'll often end up in deficit anyway because more people are having to be on uh, unemployment benefits. Yeah, um, <laughs> government surpluses always end up with, uh, with a negative result. And if you go back and have a look at the charts of surpluses and deficits and you compare it against recessions, etc., you'll see this consistent pattern. Mm. And uh, where... Uh, they ran surpluses, uh, was it Howard and Costello mm. ran surpluses in the early 2000s. Uh, that eventuated with the um, uh, with the private sector uh, having enormous debt, which they are still paying off today. We have a, this enormous level of private debt because the government wasn't injecting the currency into the economy. Therefore, they had to go and find it somewhere else. They've got to pay it back. That It, it puts a drag on the economy. It's, it's a really nice to hear a political party... Who understands how the economy works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and look, the influence of that is that if you support parties, any party who is progressive in their economic thinking, who has a strong social agenda, if they start getting a proportion of the vote, the other parties start paying attention because they understand that these are policies which are resonating. So, so always consider progressive, left-leaning, socially aware parties. But Anne, we're running out of time yet again. We have Mafalda coming up next. Time flies. <laughs> and uh, so we need to wrap up and get out of here so that um, uh, other people can have a turn. Lovely um, show again. Lo nice Terrific, to Kevin. Nice doing these live shows uh, every now and again. Nice to see you face to face. We'll do it again soon. Catch see you soon. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.